Belgian Confession, Article 36. We believe that because of the depravity of the human race, our good God has ordained kings, princes, and civil officers. He wants the world to be governed by laws and policies so that human lawlessness may be restrained and that everything may be conducted in good order among human beings. For that purpose, he has placed the sword in the hands of the government to punish evil people and to protect the good. And being called in this manner to, con to, to contribute to the advancement of a society that is pleasing to God, the civil rulers have the task, subject to God's law, of removing every obstacle to the preaching of the gospel and to every aspect of divine worship. They should do this while completely refraining from every tendency toward exercising absolute authority and while functioning in the sphere entrusted to them with the means belonging to them. They should do it in order that the word of God may have free course, the kingdom of Jesus Christ may progress, and every anti-Christian power may be resisted. Moreover, everyone, regardless of status, condition, or rank, must be subject to the government and pay taxes, holding its representatives in honor and respect, and obey them in all things that are not in conflict with God's word, praying for them that the Lord may be willing to lead them in all their ways, and that we may live a peaceful and quiet life in all piety and decency. The reading from the Belgic Confession, Article 36. Our scripture reading to go with our confession this evening comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 18. The Gospel of John, chapter 18. This is the story of Jesus before Pontius Pilate. The Gospel of John, chapter 18. And I know it's probably too late, uh, but um, I'm going to be referring to the text of the confession a little bit throughout the sermon. So if you still have it open, keep it open. But if you don't, then... I'll, I'll try and make things clear. The Gospel of John is our Gospel reading for this evening. The Gospel of John, chapter 18, verses 28 through 40. And as we approach God's word, let's come before him in prayer. O oh Lord our God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that in these stories, these songs, these poems, and these letters... You reveal yourself to us so that we may know you and love you. We thank you that in these words, you teach us who we are. Your children adopted in Jesus Christ, heirs of the inheritance of eternal life, and citizens of the kingdom of God. Lord, we thank you that this story gives us such a great and clear identity. Lord our God, we pray 
that as we now turn to read your word, that you would send your Holy Spirit to us to open our eyes, to open our ears, to open our minds, and to open our hearts to all that it is that you would have us see and hear and know and believe. Transform us more and more, we pray, into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. The Gospel of John, chapter 18, beginning at verse 28. The Apostle writes, Then the Jews, that is the Jewish leaders, led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat at the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You are right in saying that I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. With this, he went out again to the Jewish leaders and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. And Barabbas had taken part in the rebellion. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, whenever we talk about the relationship of the church to the state, to the civil government, to worldly powers, the stance of Christians toward political issues, or the role of Christians in civil society, 
we run into some complicated things. Part of the reason for this is that many people hold political convictions fiercely, even religiously, you might say. Politicians present political positions in stark black and white terms, framing them as issues of economic survivability, of national security, even of life and death. And people likewise desire for scripture to offer them clear guidance on what stances to hold and how to vote. Stances that scripture, more often than not, does not give clearly. But another part of this is that scripture seems to hold a kind of ambivalent attitude toward worldly power. Sometimes scripture's attitude toward worldly power even seems contradictory. In some parts of scripture we read that Christians ought to submit to governing authorities. In other parts, we read of Christians who directly disobey the law and when brought before the judge say, we must obey God, not human masters. Scripture at times seems to demonstrate two sides, that Christians ought to submit to governments and that Christians ought to engage in civil disobedience. And this ambivalence of scripture can be incredibly frustrating for theologians who are trying to articulate a biblical theology of political engagement and responsibility, or for pastors who are trying to write a sermon on Article 36 of the Belgic Confession. The complicated biblical teaching regarding the relationship of God's people to earthly governments can be seen in our confession today. As we read through the text of Article 36 of the Belgian Confession, you might have noticed a series of asterisks punctuating the text. And this is because Article 36 of the Belgian Confession, as we have it in our Psalter hymnal, comes to us in a form that has undergone serious historical surgery, as Dr. Neil Plantinger puts it. Throughout the years, Reformed Christians have wrestled with our commitment to the Reformed Confessions. We have struggled especially with Article 36 of the Belgic Confession. In the Christian Reformed Church, because of our commitment and our conviction that the confessions are faithful summaries of scripture that ought to guide our life and our doctrine, this has led our church on two occasions to amend the text of Article 36 to bring it more in line with scripture. And so in 1958, the Synod of the Christian Reformed Church made the decision to edit the middle section of, the, of Article 36 on the role of the government. And in 1985, it removed the entire closing paragraph of the Belgic Confession, which urged all Christians to detest the Anabaptists for their supposedly dangerous and heretical views on government and especially private property. 
The basic problem with the original text of Article 36 of the Belgian Confession facing modern Christians was that Guido de Bray, the author of the Belgian Confession, like most Christians of his time, assumed a posture that we today call sacralism. The idea that a society is held together by common commitment to religious faith. In a sacral society, it was understood that the arm of the church and the arm of the state worked together. And while God had given the arm of the state the power of the sword, representing corporal punishment, the arm of the church was always assumed to have a hand, a guiding hand, on the arm of the state, directing where the sword should be applied. And so, in most Christians' understanding in the medieval world, part of the role of government was understood to be the promotion of true doctrine and of right worship. And therefore, the destruction, the punishment, the obliteration of false doctrine and idolatry, of heresy. And so in the medieval mind, it made sense that the government was essentially religious and that the government would defend and protect its religion from any other competing religious claims. And so you have Catholic princes persecuting Protestant Christians and Protestant princes persecuting Catholic Christians. That was just the way that everybody understood society to work. There was one group of Christians, and this is kind of ironic. There's one group of Christians during the Reformation that holds a different view. And that's the Anabaptists, who Guido de Bray would have us despise. The Anabaptists believed that the church should not have any hand in the state's exercise of corporal punishment. The Anabaptists believed and taught that God had given the state a corporal authority to punish corporal sins. To the church, however, God had given a different kind of authority, a spiritual authority. And the church had a spiritual authority with which to punish spiritual sins. And so the way that the Anabaptists understood it, if someone had committed a spiritual sin by teaching false doctrine or by practicing idolatry, the appropriate, puni- the appropriate punishment was not imprisonment or exile or execution, but the spiritual punishment of church discipline of excommunication. And the reason this is ironic is because Most people, most Christians today, have largely come to accept that the Anabaptists were right about this. There are very few Christians today who believe that it should be within the government's rights to establish the boundaries of right religion, much less to prosecute and punish people for holding to different religious convictions. And so in 1958, the Christian Reformed Church changed the Belgian Confession 
And now, instead of confessing that it's the government's task to uphold the sacred ministry, promote right worship, and destroy idolatry, we confess that the government ought to remove any obstacles to right worship and the preaching of the gospel, and that the government ought to refrain from exercising absolute authority and function within the sphere entrusted to it by God, that is, the establishment of good order in society by promoting good and punishing evil. And that, at its root, is what the Belgian Confession says is the appropriate role of government. Human, earthly governments ought to restrain lawlessness and maintain order so that human persons may flourish as God intended. And this is the very foundation of democratic political discourse. Politicians and parties may approach this question with very different ideas of what human flourishing looks like or how we get there. But ultimately, the goal of government, of politics, and of political discourse is to establish a society in which human persons are able to flourish. The Confession urges civil rulers to refrain from any tendency toward exercising absolute authority to limit the function of their power to the sphere entrusted to them. And in this urging, we hear echoes of the Dutch theologian and statesman Abraham Kuyper, a reformed Christian who wrestled profoundly with the relationship of the church and the state in a modern, pluralistic society. And so it's from Kuiper that we get this language of spheres, understanding that the church and the state operate in different spheres with different goals, different tools, and different authority. But those of us who are familiar with Kuiper's understanding of sphere sovereignty should not be too quick to conclude then that the church should do church things and the state should do state things and they shouldn't have that much to do with each other. Because Kuiper is also the one who famously wrote that there is not a square inch in all creation over which Jesus Christ does not cry, mine. Every square inch of this world belongs to our Lord. And yet too many Christians have treated the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God as though they are two different places. As though the claims of God's kingdom mean nothing for this world. And the governments of this world have nothing at all to do with the people of God. And that's what I want to really focus on this evening because, and I get this from, uh, from James Smith, the, the professor of philosophy at Calvin College, who sees contemporary Christian teaching on politics largely falling into one of two equally dangerous errors. On the one hand, many Christians see politics as an inherently immoral, this-worldly project. These Christians prophetically proclaim the failings of modern society, of the, of the failure of the project of liberal democracy, and they advocate the total withdrawal of Christians from the civil realm. Christians should retreat from the cities, from the centers of power, from the Babylons of this age, 
and establish their own communities that stand apart, that live by different rules. A city on a hill, a light in the darkness, protecting, defending the purity of God's people from the corruption and immorality of the secular world. Christians should be totally separate from this fallen world with its fallen forms of government. On the other hand, however, you have some Christians who see politics almost, it seems, as, a way, as the way in which we bring about the kingdom of God here on earth. And these Christians engage wholeheartedly in the political process, drafting and lobbying for policies and politicians who will help God's kingdom come, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These Christians seek to bend and shape civil law to the vision of biblical morality, calling all people, not just Christians, but all people, to live according to the way that God calls us to live. In this view, Christians should not only be engaged with politics and civil government, Christians should control it. Dr. Smith says that both of these views are dangerous for Christians. And I think he's right. The Christian separatist movement in its prophetic critique of the earthly kingdom falls into despair. There is no hope for the governments of this world and therefore no real purpose for the governments of this world. But the Christian political movement, on the other hand, is unquestioning in its participation in the political system, and it falls to the error of triumphalism, that we will bring God's kingdom on earth. Scripture, though, is much more ambivalent about the earthly kingdom. And we see that in a powerful way in our passage for today. In this story, we hear an exchange between Jesus, our Lord, and Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, the representative of Caesar in that region of the world. And this passage is profoundly ironic because a lot of the titles that we give to Jesus, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, King of all the earth, the great high priest, even Son of God, all of these were official titles of Caesar. Rex Regnum, Rex Mundum, Pontifex Maximus, Filius Deo, the Son of God. All of these were Latin legal titles for the emperor of Rome. So that's awesome. But even more awesome, I think, is Jesus' attitude throughout this whole conversation. It's almost like Jesus can't be bothered that much with Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate is a really important man who represents the might and the power of the whole Roman Empire. Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus kind of says, oh, did you come up with that all by yourself? And Pilate says, I'm not Jewish. I don't understand you people. Tell me, why are your people so angry with you? And Jesus says, 
my kingdom does not come from this world. Most of our modern translations, including ours in our pews, follow the King James. They say, my kingdom is not of this world. But in the Greek, it's more like Jesus says, my kingdom does not come from here. My kingdom does not originate here. Too often we think of the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God as separate spaces, as different places. The kingdoms of this world obviously have clear boundaries, clear borders, and none of them obviously are the kingdom of God, despite what some of them would have us think. And so we tend to think of the kingdom of God as being not a place, not here at least, but somewhere far away, in heaven probably, up in the sky. But the Bible doesn't so much imagine God's kingdom, the kingdom of God, as a place, as much as it is, as it imagines it as a time. And we see this reflected in the New Testament language of the present age and the age to come. The present age, the age of the rulers of the kings, uh, the, 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 the rulers of this earth, and the age to come, the age of the kingdom of God. And the cool thing is that scripture teaches that in the person of Jesus, the age to come has broken into the present age and is present now in the church. That the kingdom of God has broken into the kingdoms of this world through the people filled and animated by the Spirit of God. Jesus is the inbreaking of the new creation of the kingdom of God, of the age to come. And this is what underlies our Lord's conversation with Pontius Pilate in this passage. It's almost like Jesus is saying, Rome may have this moment, but I have the future. Rome may have this moment, but I have the future. When the Pharisees ask Jesus in the temple courts whether it's rightful to pay taxes, Jesus says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, but render unto God that which is God's. And in this passage, Jesus is definitely not saying, like, Caesar has his sphere of authority and he appropriately exercises it over here, and God has his sphere of authority and he appropriately exercises it over here. No, Jesus is saying, give Caesar this moment, but give God the future. And this is really important because this is why Christians can say with the Apostle Paul in Romans 13, that everyone ought to be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. Christians all over the world throughout history have confessed these words. Whether they lived under democratically elected leaders or despotic warlords or royal family dynasties or tyrannical dictators, and the reason that Christians can confess these words in all times and all places is because the kingdoms of this world may have this moment, 
but the future belongs to God. And it's in light of this truth that the Belgic Confession encourages believers to be subject to their governments, to pay their taxes, I know, I know, to hold government offices in honor and respect, to obey them in all things that are not contrary to God's word. Because regardless of who rules over us in this moment, the future belongs to God. And it's in the sure hope of that future that we live and move and pray God's kingdom come, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and all God's people said. O Lord our God, we thank you that you are our king. We thank you that though the kingdoms of this world may rule over us for a moment, the future is yours. And we long for the day when your kingdom will come and your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we pray that we would neither fall into despair or into presumption that your kingdom will never come or that your kingdom has already come. We pray that you would fill us with the sure hope that whoever rules over us in this moment, the future is yours. And as we wait, O Lord our God, we pray that you would equip us to be prophets, when we need to critique and to be champions when we have opportunities to make things better. We pray that you would equip us as we enter into the political sphere, the civil sphere, to be agents of renewal for Jesus Christ showing justice and mercy in this fallen world. Bless us, O Lord, we pray. In the name of your Son, our King.